one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Alright, and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 438 for the week of Monday, December 3rd, 2012. We are nearing the end of season 4. My name is Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining us here tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome back, Gene. Thank you, sir, and thanks for the uh, condolences for everybody that uh, kind of sent them over um, on Twitter. I appreciate it, and, and so does my family. And boy, Sawyer, I don't know where we begin tonight. There's just so much news floating around here. It's ridiculous, so I can't wait to you know, really, really lay up to show. Same. I think we begin first by welcoming Mark Ratterman as well. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here. Boy, do we have a lot of news that happened within this past week. Where to begin, as you asked, Gene? I think we'll begin out in San Francisco, California, where a major announcement was supposed to be made. As you'll remember, we discussed this last week on the show, that in an interview with NPR, John Grotzinger made a comment about some data that he happened to be looking at that was going to be one for the record book, supposedly. Well, as was announced today... It turns out the major announcement is that the SAM instrument works. It works pretty well, and that's what they were hoping for. I mean, there is some data that they're getting that says there may be some organic compounds. However, it is not confirmed whether those are from Mars or if they are from Earth, such as the methane example that we used. So, Gene, you were live tweeting this event. What was the reaction on Twitter when they didn't make a huge announcement? Well, I don't want to say that, you know, we heard wah, 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 or anything like that. Um, I will say uh, one thing that uh, I believe John Grotzinger himself sort of alluded to. He's, he indicated that well, he discovered that he had to be careful in what you say and, and how you say it. And he basically said the enthusiasm of the team has been sort of misunderstood in this. And um, since I wasn't here last week, uh, this kind of reflects what I would have said. And I know th this sounds a little bit like Monday morning quarterbacking, but I always felt that uh, one man's you know historic find is another individual's trivia. And uh, I, you know, the NASA PR machine basically tried to say that oh, it's the entire mission that, that Dr. Grotzinger was talking about and so on. They really, really tried to sort of cover up, I don't want to say the faux pas, but I think it was a little bit, you know, a little bit as far as enthusiasm was concerned. I think that the enthusiasm of the team was sort of spilling out that uh, everything was working on board the spacecraft. 
Um, as far as uh, the announcement itself is concerned, it just simply says that we've got to do some more digging. The, uh, the announcement made today basically said that we may have found organics, it, but we're not too sure of their origin, meaning that they could be indigenous to Mars or they could have been carried from Earth via a few, uh, a few you know, ideas or a few, uh, a few things that, the, that were mentioned in the, uh, in the broadcast. Some of those things sort of escaped my mind at this point. But um, there are several sources that could contaminate it, and they just want to rule those things out. So they're really, really playing this close to the vest and, and close by the numbers. But I, I think as far as the, quote, historic, you know, close quote, commentary uh, that uh, you know everybody was saying was was thinking about I think really really uh, the, the mainstream press took that ball and just literally ran ran through it and ran you know rampant with with speculation and I think that's that was was primary the problem the problem there um, sometimes the the truth as we're finding out is a little stranger than fiction but uh, um, they're working the uh, the evidence, they'll, they'll go ahead and present that evidence once they've they've ruled out any possible earth contamination from there. But the good news is that uh, the all of the instruments on board Curiosity work. They're all working in unison, and I think that's what um, what Dr. Grotzinger was also trying to say here too that. They have um, each one of these 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 systems were sort of involved in this finding. Um, even he said even the weather instrument was sort of involved in the finding too because they had to go ahead and predict when they could go ahead and take a sample so it wouldn't blow you know blow clean out of the uh, the scoop. So you know even 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 Curiosity's weather uh, weather systems played a played a role, but. Uh, um, it's good to see that the vehicle is working. It's doing its job. It is sort of roaming the surface, trying to find some things. And and um, he also, I think, indicated to Sawyer, I, I and and check me on this one, that they're going to head over to uh, to Yellowknife. They're they're trying to go ahead and and find an area where they can drill first, at least before the, the end of the year, and then um, in 2013 they're going to start the uh, the ascent up uh, up Mount Sharp. Correct. That was another one of the major announcements was that they were planning to make the trek up Mount Sharp, which is right in the middle of their landing site in early 2013. And that's going to be interesting once we start seeing the results they get from that. Yeah, that's going to that's that's you'll have to excuse the expression, but that's where the rubber is going to meet the road on Ooh. that. And and the neat and the neat part about, too, is it, and I believe one of the I'm trying to uh, remember who it was that said this during the press conference. The interesting thing is that they have confirmed that they've landed right in the middle of a, an ancient, you know, riverbed there. So um, that's also some good news for uh, for uh, Curiosity and and trying to roam around and trying to discover some some new things about about their surroundings. But I think too, um, I think they, the the soil readings they were getting also said that they were pretty much in line with what they saw. Um, what they saw on Viking, what they saw on on the Mars exploration rovers as well. So it wasn't really a huge surprise, which which kind of you know again makes us wonder 
uh, what else we're gonna we're gonna find. But it looks like you know we're dealing with a global situation here. So that that's that's also some some interesting uh, you know eyebrow raising news. Yes, indeed. So was it the major announcement everybody was expecting? No, but still some pretty good news and a great update on Curiosity, which, again, as you remember from last week's episode, if you listen, is still a contender for Time's Person of the Year. So you can go ahead and keep voting for it. We're still on trip one around the table, but it actually comes right back to me, which is a unique one. This is just some more amazing news that we have to cover this week. And also an announcement that was made today, and that is that Voyager 1, which we sent and is near the outer edge of the solar system, in fact, discovered essentially a new part of the solar system that scientists didn't even think existed. And that is at the very outer edge of where our solar system ends and the rest of the galaxy begins, there is a magnetic highway. Gene, can you kind of explain what this is a little bit? Because I have a feeling you'll do a better job than I would. Essentially, this is a, an area where I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that there was a strong interstellar magnetic field, but in they're finding out, too, that it's also blowing in a, in a different direction. They were expecting it to blow in, in one direction. And, and when we're talking about um, you know, magnetic fields and the solar wind and all that stuff we're not really talking about you know wind as as you know you and I know it um, we're talking about uh, you know particles and so on basically they're calling it the magnetic highway because yeah. we have the outer edge of the whole we have the outer edge of the solar system which we call the heliosphere right basically the region of the heliosphere that scientists are calling a magnetic highway is where charged particles from inside the heliosphere flow outwards into the galaxy, and at the same time, particles from the galaxy flow into the heliosphere. That's pretty much the best way to describe it. So it's basically where particles from inside the solar system leave, and stuff from inside the galaxy comes into the solar system. Right, but the idea, too, is is they didn't really know which direction the stuff was blowing, you know, was coming at the spacecraft. Right, so, at first the whole region wasn't even expected, though. Right, exactly. So I believe there's a there's a device that um, is used for measuring the solar wind that was was turned on that was basically activated on Voyager and it it turned in the direction they wanted it to turn. Now, bear in mind um, these vehicles. Voyager one is about eleven billion miles away. Voyager two is about nine billion miles away, and these folks were sending. Excuse me, they're sending commands up to these spacecraft um, to turn instruments on that probably haven't been activated since, oh, I don't know, um, Nep the Neptune encounter. And um, gosh darn it, the thing after you know, all this time works. And it worked and, and, and it turned in the direction that they wanted it to turn. And, uh, you know, first off, that's a minor miracle in and of itself. But it, if if I recall, Sawyer, this, this stuff was was blowing in a almost a northerly direction, and it was something that they didn't really really expect that to to, to see. No, they they were well, expecting it to not exactly. When they oriented it correctly, they did see it going east to west, right. which is where it does with, in the rest of the solar system. But at this rate, they're figuring when they reach the outer edge of it, that's when it's going to start to go more north to south. Right as they leave the system, as they leave the solar system. 
Right. So, you know, but the the idea though, it was just just absolutely mind-boggling to me that the fact that these vehicles left here in 1977, okay, and and they are still. I mean, these these two vehicles are sort of like the perennial energizer bunnies of our, uh, you know, of our uh, uh, robotic fleet out there. I mean, they're they're still operating. They're still doing some some grand science, and will continue to do so until about 2020. And that's when they're going to have to go ahead and play some interesting little games with uh, what do they deactivate, what do they keep on, that type of thing, until about 2025, when the I believe the RTG finally gives out. They could still do some some engineering, you know, commands to the to the spacecraft after that period of time. But, um, you know, as far as doing any science, I think they'd have to go ahead and turn off all, all the science instruments past 2025. But the fact that they have a craft that's supposed to keep working with all of its scientific instruments for at least another seven years, and we're talking something that was launched over 30 years ago. I mean, I was in grade school when this thing launched, so. Um, <laughs> what year was it again? 19, 1977, so. So, yeah, we're talking... 35 going on 36 years ago this thing launched and it's not only still receiving commands but sending back science and is expected to do so with all of its science instruments for at least another seven years and with some science instruments probably for the next 12 that's impressive yeah tell me about it i mean we're still i mean we were still trying to figure out whether or whether or not um, you know, Voyager had actually left the solar the solar system or not, and gone into into stellar space. And again, as I believe one of the, the the scientists said on the call, they kind of you know this was sort of akin to uh, Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown. Um, you know, because they all thought that we were pretty much you know darn close to being outside side the solar system and into into stellar space. And uh, that's not going to be the case. Uh, according to the uh, project manager, uh, uh, Dr. Ed Stone, he doesn't figure the Voyagers will probably leave the, sol- the, quote, leave the influence of the sun for another two years yet. So they'll p- still be taking measurements and trying to see when really, you know, that, that sphere ends and where the sun's influence ends and when really, really you're going to be in, quote, interstellar space question also that was asked um, at the, 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 the press conference was when you know will Voyager end up being under the influence of another star and the answer to that question was kind of interesting they were saying something to the effect that it would be in another 40,000 years after uh, Voyager leaves the, our sun's influence that it potentially could be under the influence of another star so, um, you know, that's, <laughs> that's still, you know, mind-boggling um, that this vehicle is still going to be out there. You know, it'll be a testament to, to man's ingenuity and, uh, and may be under the influence of, a, of, another, of another star some, you know, 40,000 years from now, long after its, its creators are, are dust. So, you know, kind of a, a humbling, humbling thought. Let's just hope that next star down the road doesn't have any ordinances against littering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, sorry, as far as the magnetic field itself is concerned, did they give any numbers as far as, because I know Earth has its own magnetic field, and mm-hmm. I believe somebody ha- had mentioned, you know, how strong is it as compared to Earth's? 
the it was about one one hundred thousandth of the magnetic field of Earth. I mean, so this is the the kind of stuff that that Voyager is measuring. Uh, I I just thought that that's also another mind-boggling thing that we were able to de- detect a magnetic field that that sensitive and that small. A testament to the amazing science that we're getting. And remember, these are scientific instruments that were launched in 1977. Who knows when they were actually constructed and put on the spacecraft? And they just keep going and going and going. Sorry. (laughs) Major credit to them. So, we're not done yet with our trip around the table on round one. This time we're going to go to Eugene. And I believe you have... Another story for us about Orion, correct? Yeah, we're back from uh, from uh, the robots, and uh, we're back to uh, to talking about human spaceflight here. Uh, just a really quick update um, on some of the cracks that were found um, on the Orion vehicle. Um, there was a story uh, last week about some uh, uh, small cracks being discovered. On um, the uh, uh, on the on the test vehicle that's going to be part of the exploration flight test one in 2014, I'm looking at an article dated November 30th, written by our good friend uh, Mr. Frank Mooring Jr. from Aviation Week, uh, indicating that the, these cracks will not delay the Orion debut in 2014. Um, he reports that uh, quote the cracks in three adjacent radial ribs machined into the aft bulkhead did not go all the way through the uh, the pressure vessel and the vessel continued to to hold its pressure um, after the after its failure at uh, 21.6 psi and this is according to a NASA spokesman um, now part of the human rating process is to test these vehicles to make sure they can they can hold structural integrity um, the interesting thing that uh, Frank notes here is that similar cracks had appeared on the Unity node um, at uh, uh, on the International Space Station initially, uh, which took a uh, and it took a, uh, a, a, a basically a weight hit to to modif- to make the modifications necessary. So I'm kind of wondering if uh, if that's going to be the end result here, and Orion is going to also unfortunately have to have to share the same fate. But it looks like again that this, this, they're going to go ahead. They'll fix the work, the problem. They'll fix it, and um, the uh, uh, exploration flight test will continue in 2014. Um, the other interesting news I have here with with Orion is that um, it looks like Orion is now going to be truly an international endeavor. Um, this uh, this uh, report here. Uh, dated, uh, what's your date here? I'm looking at uh, from uh, NBC News, uh, dated last week. Again, this is uh, written by uh, a gentleman by the name of Robert uh, Coppinger. And again, we'll throw this in the show notes here. Um, it looks like um, that the European Space Agency will go ahead and build the, uh, uh, the service module for the Orion. Um, this is... Uh, this is just, you know, a big feather in the cap for ESA. Um, again, the, the service module is sort of, you know, for those of you who, who don't understand what I'm talking about, if you recall the old Apollo spacecraft, 
Um, this is sort of like akin to the trailer that you take on on your camping trip. You know that that your car drags along. It has all the 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 oxygen, the propulsion, and all that, and, and the electricals to uh, to make the capsule uh, work and livable and, and workable. Um, it the uh, the service module will be will be based on the. Uh, um, the uh, European ATV, which is the robotic uh, cargo craft that is now servicing the uh, International Space Station, and um, this is a a huge uh, a huge feather in the cap for ESA. However, I do know that there were some American companies kind of sort of after this. So I, you know, there there are some you know job repercussions here in the United States for that, but. I guess too from a from a you know trying to make Orion sort of global, um, this could could sort of help you know number one make the Europeans feel like they're really really on board in in the exploration effort. Now one of the other things that the article does mention and it's something that you know after this announcement was made last week it kind of crossed my mind too um, about uh, any of the uh, the ITAR regulations or you know ITAR is short for International Traffic and Arms Regulations. Um, if ITAR 2 is going to be a, a problem here, and according to the article, it uh, they're saying that it may not, um, uh, and I will quote it directly, saying the, the ITAR constraints are more affecting if ESA tried to build something with U.S. components and we were to use them in a project that was not American. Um, the ITAR regulations are what they are, and we have to respect them. So, apparently, ITAR may not play a role in this. So, um, for those who don't know, what is ITAR other than the acronym? What does that mean specifically? It's essentially saying that we cannot go ahead and transfer technology to another nation that could be theoretically used against us. That's the best way I can put it. Um, you know any any type of high you know any type of high technology whether it be you know and and also that has any type of military implications and like it or not rockets and rocket engines yeah they've got military implications so um and this is this is something that by the way has uh has befuddled <laughs> a, a lot of the the commercial uh folks as well uh, you know, Sawyer, you kind of encountered that, or, or we both encountered that during our uh, tour with uh, space exploration technologies um, and taking photographs and things like that. So, yeah. so um, you know, it, it kind of, you know, so so we're being being kind of careful with this. But again, I know I'm kind of wondering though what the impact is going to be here on. Uh, uh, in the U.S., I, I'm, I know, you know, I'm, I am really, really kind of excited for our, our European friends, but I'm wondering, you know, if Lockheed Martin and Boeing are looking back at this and going, you know, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Who, Sawyer, what do you think? Uh, I'm pretty sure you know a little bit about my opinion here, but I don't know. I, I mean, NASA's not looking that great in terms of the eyes of the tax-paying public at the moment. With no space shuttle program and no way to get into space, they're not too happy with us in paying $63 million a seat to fly with Russia. And another thing, 
isn't it about a sense of pride? I mean, I understand now that there's a lot of things that we can't do unless we partner with other nations, especially if we wanted to go to Mars or something like that. And it's not a wartime situation, but I mean, wasn't that one of the best feelings of national pride was when you had all of the parts made in America? I mean, there's a TV network, a major TV network that does a regular segment called Made in America, showcasing items that are made in this country. Well, isn't there a little bit of pride? The space shuttle was made in America. All parts of the Saturn V, ignoring the fact it was a German scientist, he was working for us. And we had parts that were made in Louisiana. We had parts that were made in Long Island. We had parts that were made in Florida, Texas, California. I mean, you had it all over the country. You had parts being made and tested. I just feel like if you're going to do that, I mean, sure, it's the American capsule. They'll probably be flying on an American rocket. But I, I don't know, especially since you were saying that there are companies that were thinking at that were looking at actually helping to design it, like Boeing. I don't know. Yeah, Lockheed Martin Space Systems also, you know, they were they were looking uh, possibly in, in, into designing it too. But as you pointed out, the American taxpayer is, you know, uh, either it's the American taxpayer or the American government itself that's not really really willing to go ahead and open up its wallet a little wider for for space space projects right now. And I think we're in this new era, you know, of, quote, cooperation, close quote, where, you know, we've, we've got the International Space Station floating above us and so on, um, that partnerships to do bold things are now going to be required because, it, again, it, it kind of spreads the money around a little bit more. And we've also demonstrated, too, at least the International Space Station has sort of demonstrated, too, that we could... Take you know a vehicle built in the United States and marry it to technology built in Russia or or the European Union or or any anywhere else for that matter and make it work. Um, I'm not I'm I'm not uh, you know discounting you know the feeling of pride. I I know first off when when Orion finally flies, hopefully on <laughs> hopefully on on the SLS that. Um, um, we will, uh, you know, there'll be a lot of pride there too. Um, but maybe because of the, the economic situation that we're finding ourselves in, we may have to swallow that pride a little bit to do, to do bold things, unfortunately. It's just right now just the, the way things are. Um, nobody apparently has the stomach, like it or not, to go ahead and fund these things. And, and it's, it's the, the sad but, but awful truth. I get that. I understand that. I understand it's also proven technology. And with that, it'll be obviously a little bit cheaper to modify than to come up with something completely from scratch. And again, it is cost-saving, and it's more of a cooperative effort since we're not in a wartime situation anymore. But I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that it's ESA that we're working with, and I'm glad that, you know, we're dealing with parts of rockets that have have a really great proven track record. I have nothing against ESA. I'm just still iffy on it. Yeah. I, I, again, I'm. I'm. I can understand your point. I can. I can really, really. You know, I. I honestly sympathize with it because I know that there's Sawyer. You. You and I. We both know folks that uh, got caught up in the uh, in the shuttle layoff 
uh, situation that will love to go ahead and get back in you know, in the saddle again and possibly work on the Orion service module or some other project. And because now that that opportunity is going overseas, you know, it's it's a tough nut to to you know to crack there. I mean, really, it really is. But um, again, I guess this is this has got to be. And as much as I hate this term, uh, the new normal, if you will where we've got a lot of cooperation along the, along the boards and that um, uh, we have to go ahead and possibly you know marry technologies together that normally wouldn't be to keep uh, to keep our uh, uh, our reach for the stars going right and if it can honestly help us get back into space sooner and back on our way towards exploration and eventually the moon and mars i'll be all for it but Let's get there first. Let's get a plan. But that's a show for that. That's a that's a topic for another show. Oh, that's a whole nother topic <laughs> and a whole nother can of worms that we're going to keep closed. Because oh yeah, because that is the end of round one. I know it's a weird trip around the table, and we missed somebody. So we're going to start off round two with that somebody we missed. Mark, you have something different for us than usual, right? Yes, I do. Uh, this time around. Rather than pay attention to news and important stuff, I found a different use for my time that uh, I think if I invite you into that world, you'll find it quite interesting. There's a program on NPR radio called Science Friday. And if you do a simple search for Sci-Fry, the right stuff, it will take you to the Science Friday page for their Science Friday book club where they talked about The Right Stuff on November 30th. Now, The Right Stuff was a book by Tom Wolfe, and they were talking about it. But as a special, and I do mean special bonus, they had a guest on the first part of their program on this segment, General Chuck Yeager. Now, Chuck Yeager was the pilot who was the first man to break the speed of sound and he celebrated recently the 65th anniversary of that in the middle of October by breaking it again. He borrowed an F-15 from Nellis Air Force Base. He'll be 90 years old in a few months. And why I'm not going to tell you everything that they said on this segment of Science Friday, um, for instance, the, the question was asked, how well did the author Tom Wolfe capture Chuck Yeager? and his character and the way he really is and the bright stuff. That question was asked of General Yeager. They also asked him where did the term the right stuff come from? You can listen to this show and you'll hear General Yeager repeat what he said about the first shuttle landing on the dry lake bed at Edwards Air Force Base. And he saw that with Ira Flato, who's the host of Science Friday. He also made a statement, which I'm not going to complete because I'd like for you all to listen to this and I think you'll find it well worth uh, less than 30 minutes of your time to go to the website and, and listen. But he wondered how many trillions of dollars, as he said it, NASA has wasted. Not all of NASA, just, and that's the part I'm going to leave out for you to listen to. Now, Ira said uh, that General Yeager's never been afraid to say what's on his mind. But I invite you, after uh, Chuck Yeager is off the call and they're discussing the book, where they take a caller who, who joined the show and uh, made a comment about Navy flight training in 1962, where he had Ed White and Gus Grissom 
in his helicopter ground school. I'm, I'm guessing from the way he talked about it that they were instructors. And he said he didn't like how Gus Grissom was portrayed in the movie. You can hear another caller who talked about his grandfather, who also flew the X-1, that aircraft that Chuck Yeager flew, first breaking the sound barrier, and his story about another pilot who may have broke the sound barrier first. So do a quick search for Cy Fry, S-C-I-F-R-I, the right stuff, and I think you'll find it quite worth your time. You can also take a look at www.chuckyeager.com C-H-U-C-K-Y-E-A-G-E-R chuckyeager.com and I had the uh, the wonderful experience uh, let's see, probably in the neighborhood of 25 years ago of actually hearing Chuck Yeager speak to a community group, uh, probably a college group in Tallahassee, Florida and he's somebody that just I just I admire him. Words can't describe the the man, the character, and if you go to his website and do searches, you'll find other uh, other books that he's mentioned in, other things that he's written. He spent a lot of years out on the speaking tour since his retirement, although obviously at uh, pushing 90 years old and still flying an F-15, he hadn't retired too much. Give it a listen. I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, Mark. Th- first, Mark, thanks for for pointing that out. I'm going to have to go ahead and I I I confess I missed that entirely, and uh, I've I've become a a pretty good fan of uh, Ira Flato's work over the years. I've been w- listening to uh, Science Friday for some time, but uh, this one I'm you know due to you know a whole bunch of other things I missed unfortunately, and I'd really like to hear uh, Chuck Chuck Yeager and 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 what uh, he had to say, especially about. Uh, about uh, our, our dear friends at NASA and so on, but um, yeah, I have a. I, I'm I'm with that one caller um, that you had mentioned that they didn't like the way Gus Grissom was portrayed in the film. Um, I have a real love hate relationship with that movie, and uh, I think I may have mentioned it here once once or twice before, but. Um, Grissom was was an engineer's engineer, and that whole thing with the uh, with the, uh, the you know the hatch incident on Liberty Bell Seven. Um, I don't know, as as you know, again, there's there's just no way in in God's green earth they've discovered that that Grissom could have blown that hatch, and and the movie kind of portrays it otherwise. And I, you know, again, that's. Yeah, that's one of the things I I I, I really really have a uh, uh, just a it just grates me about that film. It really does because Grissom was a pilot's pilot and he was an engineer's engineer uh, all the way around. I mean, if you read all of the uh, uh, the Mercury Seven books uh, um, and uh, any book on spaceflight, I'm, the one I'm thinking right now is is. Uh, uh, one that uh, Alan Shepard and Deke Slate co-wrote, um, I believe called Moonshot, which was turned into a television series on TBS a couple of years back. Um, that one also portrays Grissom as, you know, really, really one of the smartest of the, of the seven astronauts. Now, the other quick mention I want to give is about a friend who's part of the NPR sci-fi team, and that's Denise Chow that I met at Kennedy Space Center. Yeah. We interviewed her on the show once. 
She is the associate producer on Science Friday, and she did a segment on this same show, November 30th, called, uh, the, the title of it is Photographer James Balog on Climate Change and Chasing Ice. And she also has a blog on that. So take a look for Denise Chow there on Twitter. She is, I believe, at Denise Chow. And again, the link to listen to that will be in the show notes. And I know I'll be listening to it once it's posted. All right. Now, as we continue with our bizarre trip around the table, this time it goes to Gene. And Gene, you have another story for us? Certainly do, uh, Sawyer. This is sort of a follow-up to a interview that Mark and I conducted uh, a while back ago, our dear friends over at Reaction Engines. Well, they were in the news last week. Um, apparently, ESA has essentially gone ahead and rubber-stamped their work. Um, and, and to just, as, as, as far as the Sabre engine is concerned... Now, now picture this. Um, how would you like to fly from, you know, if you live in the UK, how would you like to fly from London to Sydney, Australia in about five hours? That's what this particular uh, engine could theoretically open up. Um, the Sabre engine apparently uses, a, uh, a, as, as described here on, on the program, it um, uses a, a compressed helium cooling system that's able to go ahead and um, uh, cool air going into the engine from about, uh, I believe it's, and I'm going to go ahead and take a look at the numbers here, um, that uh, is able to go ahead and cool um, the, the air entering the, the Sabre engine from 1,000 degrees centigrade to minus 150 degrees centigrade in, and I hope you're sitting down, in one one-hundredth of a second. Um, this is, you know, a, a, a huge breakthrough. Uh, not only can it go ahead and open up the door for um, aviation, but it will probably go ahead and open up the door for, you know, possible single-stage-to-orbit technologies. Uh, now, Mark, you and I recall um, talking to the folks over at Reaction Engines just a couple of weeks ago. Um, Mr. Mark Hempsell was with us. And he sort of alluded to the fact that um, this could be married to another vehicle uh, called Skylon, which they want to go ahead and use to uh, to possibly deliver cargo and uh, uh, to low Earth orbit, and possibly even crew to the International Space Station if possible. So uh, I mean, this this is a huge breakthrough. I mean, the, a lot of from what I've been reading here online, and it's been uh, uh, several other articles on this, this is the biggest thing since, uh, since the jet engine. You know, and, and, and again, it's out of, it's out of the UK. So, so hats off to, uh, to our friends there over at Reaction Engines and, uh, and wishing continued success with this. And hopefully a, a prototype vehicle will be married to this thing. And uh, to the saber to the saber engine, and we can go ahead and, and test to see if this is actually possible. If you can get to, uh, you know, from London to Sydney in about five hours, that just that just boggles my mind. And not only that, but finally achieve what we were trying to do in the 1990s with several vehicles. Um, I believe one of them was from Lockheed Martin called the Venture Star. Another vehicle was um, the Delta Clipper that was designed by then McDonnell Douglas, which I believe is now part of Boeing. I'm not sure. 
Um, somebody might have to check my history on that. That vehicle, the Delta Clipper, was a you know sort of a conical vehicle that also was trying to go ahead and achieve single stage to orbit uh, technology. Um, we never really got there, but the apparently the uh, the folks over at Reaction Engines in the UK have. So this, this theoretically could be a huge breakthrough. It really, you know, if 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 everything works the way it's supposed to. And of course, in case you missed it, we did actually have an interview with Reaction Engines, and you can listen to that on episode number four thirty four. Yep, and uh, you know, again, my my thanks to uh, uh, to Mr. Mark Hempsell for uh, for spending some time with us, and and I look forward to to having those folks on again um, in in the future to discuss this further to find out how further along we we are to this, because again, we're going to be watching this kind of close. Um, uh, this could be you know, a real serious breakthrough in single stage to orbit technology, which has been sort of the, uh, you know, the holy grail, if you will, for spaceflight. So uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed and really hoping this all works out. I agree. I definitely think they're one of the more unique and ambitious aerospace companies out there. And I like where they're going with it. Makes two of us. Sawyer makes two of us. Um, and uh, again, my thanks to uh, uh, Ms. Helen Weber uh, from uh, Reaction Engines for giving us a hand with uh, putting the logistics together for that interview. And uh, again, my thanks to uh, Dr. Lucy Rogers for also giving us a hand with that. All right. Now, normally, Mark went and Gene went. That would mean it's my turn on the second round around the table. However, as we said earlier, this is going to be a bizarre one. So, Mark, it goes back to you. And do you have some more interesting reviews for us? I'm ready. This is a freebie. Uh, the first one I mentioned with uh, the right stuff and that book review on Sci-Fi, you know, that'll take you some time to listen to. It doesn't cost anything. It's on the Internet. Well, this doesn't cost anything either. This is a book by NASA called The Earth as Art illustrates the beauty of satellite views. It's a 158-page book. You can buy it from the government printing office, but you can also download it for free from NASA. They have a free ebook, and I'll have the link in the show notes, but, but Earth is art, and it's got snow-capped mountain peaks, some of the Arizona's painted desert, the Himalayas, the Mississippi River Delta. Need I say more? That looks sounds cool, Mark. Seriously. When they say a picture is worth a thousand words, there's no point in me trying to go on. But these are pictures from the Terra, Aqua, the EO-1 satellites managed by NASA, Landsat satellites. There's an iPad version of this, and uh, I think it'll be, again, something worth taking a peek at. Thanks. Mark, seriously, I, I'm, I'm going to have to go ahead and down. The neat part about all of this here is it's free, guys. <laughs> you know, it, it's free for the download. NASA's got a whole bunch of bunch of really cool freebie books out there, and I think maybe Mark, you know, you, you're kind of leading into something. Maybe we ought to ought to examine the books out there and 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 see what's happening out there on a on a, on a regular basis. I do know uh, just a a news flash here. Um, there is a book on on the NASA website too, the on the the from the Academy of Program Project and Engineering Leadership or Apple um, on on you guessed it orbital debris mitigation and risk. And again, this is also a free 
free for the download, boys, boys and girls. And uh, again, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and include a link to that one, too, in the show notes. All right, so that concludes our second trip around the table. And for the final trip around the table, we go back to our regular format. And so we'll start off the final trip around the table with some of our favorite stories, and that's Space Shuttle and Space Station news. The Space Shuttle Atlantis, which we know recently was moved to its new location at the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex, is now actually getting closer to its final display. What do I mean by that? Well, they actually took the Space Shuttle Atlantis and put it on an angle, as it will be when it is finally displayed. It is a 43.21 degree angle, to be exact, and that is supposed to represent as the shuttle would be turning, for example, coming in for a landing. As well, the shuttle is covered in... (laughs) trying to find the best way to describe this. It's basically gift-wrapped in a way, vacuum-sealed, for lack of a better term. Oh, God, it's so sad. (laughs) For protection. Right, if you see a picture of it, it's basically saran-wrapped all nice and tight together, but I wish I could come up with a better description of it. You'd think for radio I'd be good at describing something. It kind of... Have, have you ever seen something like, like, you know, one of these huge food storage bags covering a... Um, I don't know, having a really tight seal on something, you know, like like a container that that's what that that's what this thing kind of looks like it looks like you know uh, it almost looks like a like looks like a piece of candy wrapped up or something like that and i i don't know i'm i know why they did it it's to protect the orbiter to make sure that 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 atlantis is going to be in good shape once it uh it's it's finally put put in, into position but oh god it hurts looking at her like that and i, I just said the 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 three the all the times I saw her, she was sit, sitting proudly on on pad thirty nine a and 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 to see her like that, oh boy, <laughs> that is just oh man, it's it's it it just it just really tears at you because knowing that that where that bird's been and, and so on, but she's a museum piece now and she's part of history and she's got a new job to go ahead and inspire folks to reach further and faster and and so on so i'm i'm hoping she'll she'll do her job and she'll do it well just just as well as she uh she conducted her flight and flight program so and i'm so looking forward to seeing uh, the ksc display i really am it's going to be i think that's going to be one of the all-time favorites yes indeed and just so you know the material that it's wrapped in i did a little bit more research now is the same material that we'd see around boats being shipped down a highway that's what I was trying to think of. That's exactly right. If you've ever seen a boat being shipped down there, it's the same type of material, and it, it kind of like fits over the the hull of the ship and all that. And that that that's essentially what what uh, the orbiter kind of looks like right now. But it's oh boy, it just oh, <laughs> I don't know. It's just weird looking. Right, and inside the plastic are humidity sensors. But one thing that is not inside the plastic are the wheels and the landing gear which were taken out for eventual display. That's something I didn't honestly know. Wow, really? Yes, the landing gear is removed from inside the shuttle and will be put on display. And then the final hydraulic fluid was removed from the lines, and then the landing gear doors were closed for the final time with no gear inside. Wow. Oh, boy. 
that. All right, before this gets any more sad. I'm going to just go back and, and grab a tissue. Sorry, I'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, now that the spatial Atlantis is wrapped in its nice protective coating, we still have some more manned spaceflight news, and that is aboard the International Space Station. And they have announced the crew that will spend 12 months aboard the International Space Station. This was something that they had been talking about for a while now, of getting a couple of people to spend a full year to see the results. And they chose NASA astronaut Scott Kelly and Russian cosmonaut Mikhail Kornienko. Both of them are veteran space flyers and have flown to the station before, I believe. And this is going to be interesting to see what their bodies react to after 12 months, right? Yeah, the, the whole purpose of this is to try to go ahead and, and simulate what the human body might encounter en route to Mars. And the, you figure that's probably, give or take a few months, the, the, the round trip time for currently at least. For, for a Mars flight and to just try to understand what happens with human physiology and so on. Now, there's been some, you know, critical thinking about all of this and uh, some folks are saying, well, you can't really simulate a Mars flight on, on the ISS and I'm like, well, yeah, I know because you know, all the other dangers you really can't simulate but the physiological things, yeah, you probably could get away with um, simulating at least, you know, how a human would react for about a year up there. Um, of course, the Russians have already got that kind of experience under their belt. I think, sorry, forgive me, I think is it uh, Sergei Krikalev that also has spent about a year up there? I um, I, he might have as well, but um, I believe that... The record for the longest single space flight is held by Valery Polyakov, who spent right. 437 days aboard Mir. That's right. So, um, yeah, we, we, so again, you know, we still don't have a lot of data there as far as, as, far as what's going on with the human, human body during those conditions. And the more data we get, the better off, at least, at least humans will be set up to, uh, to take on the uh, the challenges of a of a long term zero g flight, um, which it looks like you know going out to Mars may have to be. So um, uh, it, it, again, we're going to go ahead and 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 try to simulate the best we can with what we have. And right now, that's the International Space Station. So um, Scott Kelly, all good luck to you, and we'll be watching the mission very closely. Yes, indeed. And just so you know, they're scheduled to launch to the International Space Station, the two of them, in spring of 2015 and return to Earth in spring of 2016, becoming a part of four expedition missions. Now it goes back to Gene with our next story. We're going to talk about our nearest neighbor to the sun here, uh, Mercury. Uh, the uh, NASA probe MESSENGER. Um, has gone ahead and discovered that there is indeed some some ice there, but not only ice, but uh, possible organics. Now, Mercury again isn't you know nobody really thought that Mercury would be the 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 prime atmosphere, the prime area for life. I mean, because of how close it is to the sun, but it's 
the idea of finding organics may go ahead and 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 sort of shed some light where um, possibly those organics may have come here to Earth, and uh, how possibly life may uh, may you know have spread out spread out further. You know, maybe obviously to Earth and and keeping fingers crossed for Mars. Um, we're we're kind of, but but that that essentially is is the huge news there. Now we've long believed that since we found you know ice on on the moon, at least in in the Anakin Basin around the South Pole, um, and we've also discovered that the moon is a heck of a lot lot of a wetter place than we we actually thought that you know Mercury might the same conditions might might be there on Mercury as well, and it looks like that's the case. The way Messenger works out, according to the article I'm looking at here by our uh, uh, by a uh, by Irene Klotz from Reuters, Messenger doesn't obviously go ahead and and do what Curiosity does, which is go ahead scoop up soil and you know do a full analysis. I mean, Curiosity is essentially a uh, a roving robotic geologist on Mars. Uh, Messenger uh, does all of its its geology from afar. It takes a, a laser and and uh, bounces you know, bounces these laser beams and counts the particles and measures collects all sorts of data remotely from orbit. Um, but uh, again, the the organics were indeed put together and found and discovered in these little little dark areas that they weren't that. Uh, that are there, and uh, we're we're thinking too that that might open the door to figuring out where, you know, how life originated here and possibly elsewhere. So again, the the news of we had two sort of organics news uh, here today from uh, from our robotic probes, uh, Messenger last week, and of course Curiosity today. So they kind of they kind of interlock, interlock and I'm kind of wondering this this might be a dumb question I'm kind of wondering if the two teams are sort of trying to see what kind of data they're getting and or if they're collaborating at all and and seeing um you know sort of comparing notes and I'm wondering if uh, if if that would be beneficial at all Yes indeed cuz one thing that I happened to see on a couple of websites was that some of the scientists were like yeah this isn't really that big of a deal well, again, I think it wasn't a, I think the 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 surprise that it was that that it, you know these that the ice was discovered and wasn't any any big big surprise. I think maybe possibly organics being found may have been a little bit of a, 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 a an eyebrow raiser. I'm not sure, but um, the fact that that ice was discovered there. I mean, I remember you know reading in textbooks as early as oh, good lord, as early as the the, the 1990s. That ice may actually exist there, and um, uh, that there were some hopes for that, and Messenger essentially confirmed those hopes. Um, and the possibility too was that, okay, we we've got ice on the moon. We found that. And I think we've we've kind of mentioned that a little bit. You know, again, the Anakin Basin and so on. But if we've done extensive soil analysis from the soil samples that we we received from Apollo. And initially, uh, we discovered a lot of traces of, of water there, and we thought, "Oh shoot, they got con- you know the soil must have been contaminated somehow." And we dismissed that. Well, apparently, that's the case. It, the The moon is a lot quote wetter place, and Mercury. I don't want to say is an analog for the moon, but it, it it's pretty darn close. 
So it would be foolish to, to say that that's not, you know, the, the moon and Mercury are not analogs. And that's just my opinion. I'm not, I'm not a professional ge- geologist by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, I'm just kind of thinking that that's, it, it, it may be the case. Regardless, I still think that's, you know, interesting that we're finding it in other places. So It means that, to me, it means that, that the building blocks for life are tenacious. And uh, uh, they, can, they can be in any, <laughs> any environment. And uh, if that's the case, it bodes kind of well for you know, other places you know, in, in the solar system that perhaps life had arisen one, at, at, at one point. I mean, we still are, you know, knock, on, knock on wood here, we're still got our fingers crossed for Titan. We still have our fingers crossed for Europa. Who knows by the time we get there? But uh, it would it would be nice to find out. Um, but uh, uh, again, it, it just says that, that that the building blocks of life are all over the place. Whether they spontaneously are able to construct you know microbes or even you know big beasts like us is a different story and how long that takes. But it would be be neat to you know it, it's still a good finding. And on that note, I think that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thanks, Sawyer. Just real quick, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Gloria Lloyd, um, her, uh, her cousin Sarah uh, was uh, married to an Illinois State Trooper, a um, gentleman by the name of uh, Kyle Dethridge, and he was uh, making a routine stop uh, last, last Monday on the 26th and unfortunately was hit by a, a uh, tractor-trailer. Uh, while trying to make this routine stop, so uh, the, unfortunately we've we've lost one of those individuals that are that are here to protect and serve. Um, if uh, anybody is interested and and in the Illinois area that wants to go ahead or anywhere else for that matter um, is interested in making a contribution, he left behind two uh, very beautiful children uh, who I'm looking at looking at right now. Um, uh, if anybody's interested in making a, a, a contribution uh, to uh, a memorial fund that's set up for his, uh, his two chil- children, um, you can contact the, uh, the Scott Credit Union in Highland, Illinois at uh, uh, the following telephone number, uh, 618-345-1000. Again, uh, so, again, if you're interested uh, in, in trying to help somebody out, this this holiday season by all means please and thank you for joining us as well Mark Ratterman I'll be back I'm not going far and of course we'd like to thank everybody who joined us here so keep on listening and we hope you will join us next episode but until then as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are